0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the fifth Sunday of Easter, May 10th, 2020. Jesus gets theological in our gospel today. Speaking at the Last Supper, he preaches on the Trinity, specifically the unity of Father and Son. Employing the work of Thomas Aquinas, we'll explore the idea of Trinitarian union and how it is possible to see the Father when one sees the Son. We'll also dive into Aquinas' argument for different levels in heaven and finish by looking at the first century Jewish cultural context of Jesus' words, a context which reveals beautiful nuptial overtones. Welcome back, everyone. We are today talking about uh, the readings for the fifth Sunday of Easter, and our gospel is from John chapter 14 verses 1 through 12. Let's jump in together, reading our gospel to kick us off. John 14, verses 1 through 12. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwellings. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you do not know him. You do know him and have seen him. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, "'Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied.' Jesus said to him, "'Have I been with you all this time, Philip, "'and you still do not know me? "'Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. "'How can you say, show us the Father?' and in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. All right, again, our gospel from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. This is classic John because it it feels a little more ethereal, right? And we we also just got dropped right into the middle of a scene. And so let me contextualize this a little bit for you. Uh, Our gospel from John 14 is from what uh, scholars and theologians will call the Last Supper discourse. And so in St. John's gospel, when he recounts the Last Supper, he doesn't recount it in the typical way that the other synoptics do, likely because John wrote his gospel last and he knew that the other uh, gospel writers, the other evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had recounted uh, what scholars call the institution narrative, you know, the stereotypical retelling of the Last Supper. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke, gave, you know, et cetera, et cetera. John focuses rather uh, on um, the teachings that Jesus gives during the Last Supper. And so John's account of the Last Supper, though it doesn't contain the stereotypical institution narrative, is chapters and chapters long of Jesus speaking. Like if you have a, a what they call a red letter Bible, right, where it highlights the words of Jesus in red this this section of John's gospel is just page after page after page after page of Jesus's words in red. And he's speaking to them all these beautiful things. And our gospel here at John 14 verses 1 through 12 is a section of this Last Supper discourse. And so, that contextualizes, if anything, that very first verse where Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, okay? So he's preparing them for what is about to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane um, and throughout Good Friday. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And that little last uh, sentence, that clause kind of, sets the tone and kicks off the whole idea of what Jesus is going to unpack here. And what our Lord is really doing here is a serious Trinitarian theology for his apostles. He's revealing the inner life of the Trinity to them and explaining it to to them. So when he says, believe in God, believe also in me, I say that's kind of setting the tone for what he's going to unpack here, because why does Jesus say, believe in God, but believe also in me? He doesn't say, but I should say, believe in God, believe also in me. Why? Because Jesus and God are one, right? And then he's going to introduce uh, uh, the idea of the Father, okay? Not because he hasn't introduced the idea of the Father elsewhere in his public ministry, but I say that um, because here, you know, in our gospel, he brings in this idea of the Father. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So Jesus is turning there. He's saying, do not let your hearts be troubled, but he's also, and he's turning their thoughts to the Trinity, but he's also turning their thoughts to the participation in the life of the Trinity. What Jesus came to accomplish and the gift he came to give, which is uh, salvation, which is uh, at its core participation in the inner life of the Trinity, which is the beatific vision, which is heaven. I know I keep throwing out a lot of big theological terms here, but that's what our Lord is unpacking for the apostles and unpacking for us here. So do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me because I am God. We are one, you know, this idea of the Trinity. And then this notion that we're going to be taken up into the Trinity. Um, I'm going to rely a lot in this podcast on St. Thomas Aquinas. He has uh, a wonderful commentary on the gospel of John, and he delves into these ideas for us. Um, And and, uh, we're going to return, and Jesus is going to return, prompted by the questions of some of his apostles, to uh, this idea of Jesus uh, and God being one, this idea of Jesus and the Father being one. And then we'll really dive into the Trinitarian theology there. But I want to follow the thought of Aquinas here in his commentary, because before he delves into that, and before our Lord really delves into that, Aquinas wants to talk about this idea of uh, the father's house having many dwelling places. Let's just reread this, these verses. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am there, you also may be. You know the place, you know the way to the place where I am going. Aquinas Uh Takes this idea, Thomas Aquinas takes this idea of there being many dwelling places in God's house, and he asks an important question. He says, Is Jesus getting at an idea here of there being different sort of maybe like levels of heaven? Um, different is, is this idea of different dwellings refer to like different. Uh, levels. Like you can be in like, like a higher level of heaven. Like if you're a holier person, can you be in a higher level of heaven? This is a great question, right? Aquinas loves to find these great questions and then offer beautiful, insightful answers to them. And his answer to this question of, uh, are there different kind of uh, categories of heaven or different levels of heaven? Is that what our Lord is getting at when he says, different dwellings. In my father's house, there are many dwellings. There are many rooms. Aquinas says yes and no, okay? And no, very simply insofar as the object of heaven is the same for everyone, right? The object of heaven is God himself and the the sort of possession of God and the indwelling with God, the union with God, and so that, that is objective, one in the same across the board for all of us. It's not that some of us can, like God divides himself into pieces like, well, you were, you were a great saint, so I'm gonna give you more of myself and you could have done a little bit better in life, so I'm gonna give you less of myself. No, God can't do that, right? He can only give himself fully to us. But there is a way in which, yes, Aquinas says, There are kind of different uh, dwellings, different levels, different categories in a way. In heaven, how is that? So I'm going to read you a quote from Aquinas' commentary on the Gospel of John here as he's exploring this question. He says, um, yes, there can be sort of uh, different levels of heaven. I, I keep saying sort of because Aquinas doesn't actually use that word levels, but I think it, it best uh, gets across the idea we're exploring here. Yes, there can be different dwellings, categories, levels of heaven insofar as, and this is not me quoting him here, one person can be happier than another depending on the possession of this good And the capacity of each, the greater the capacity a person has for this good, the more he shares in it. I mean, he participates, this is what Aquinas is saying. He says, I mean, he participates in it more, the better disposed and prepared he is to enjoy it. This is a fascinating idea here. Okay, so. No, there's not different kinds of levels or categories of heaven um, because God gives himself perfectly, completely, and freely to every individual in heaven who possesses him in the beatific vision. But yes, there is a difference in heaven insofar as we ourselves can have different capacities for receiving that gift. So that it's not that God holds a part of Himself back, depending on you know how holy and sanctified we have been in this life, but rather our holiness and sanctification is what disposes us to receive the gift of God. And so theologians, uh, echoing this idea that uh, Thomas puts forth, say that the truly holy person. The great saint, in a way, possesses God more fully in heaven, and in almost, in a way, enjoys more happiness because he has a greater capacity for God. Um, Saint Therese of Lisieux, I believe, talks about this uh, in her autobiography. She talks about the idea of uh, of of, of different kind of containers of say water, okay. So say um, one person has a, a thimble, and another person has a barrel, right? Each person in heaven will their container will be full. God will hold nothing back, but there's a way in which, in a manner of speaking the saint who has really disposed himself to receive the gift of god to receive god himself who maybe has made himself into a sort of a barrel can possess more of god and so everyone everyone's container if you will and again i'm using analogous uh, analogous language that that woefully falls short but everyone's container so to speak will be full in heaven but we can expand our container to dispose ourselves to receive God. We can, we can enlarge our capacity to, to, to have God, okay? And this should be a great motivator for us to sanctify ourselves. And here we can appreciate that um, Thomas uh, continues to dwell on this question in a a very theological fashion. And he says, how are we more fully disposed to receive God in heaven? How can we more fully dispose ourselves to receive God in heaven? And so Aquinas says that happiness consists in two things. So the happiness in heaven consists in two things. First in the vision, of God itself, and secondly, in the delight in enjoying God. Okay. So, first of all, happiness in heaven consists in, first of all, the vision of God itself, and secondly, in the delight in enjoying God. And he says that we dispose ourselves to that first aspect of happiness in heaven, the vision of God, by purity. Okay. We dispose ourselves to receive the vision of God by purity. And uh, we think, for example, of Matthew 5:8. blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Okay. One of the Beatitudes. What is the promise of being pure in heart? Seeing God. And we can relate this to the beatific vision. Okay. And so purity is deeply important. Uh, in purity is, Kind of clouds our vision quite literally. It's like having cataracts or something. Um, it's fascinating that you know, for example, Saint Paul, um, when he has his conversion um, and, and is prayed over, it, something like scales fall from his eyes. Okay, and so there's this this sort of idea or image that impurity uh, prevents us from seeing. And imagine God being in front of you and you having like cataracts. You're seeing him, but you're not really seeing him very well. And is that his fault? No, it's your fault. And it's fascinating too, this idea that um, purity is what disposes us to the vision of God because um, if you remember to the, uh, the uh, private revelations that Our Lady gave to the children at Fatima, she actually said that the main reason that souls fall into hell is because sins of impurity, all right? Because impurity prevents us from seeing God, and I think there's I think the, the primary thing that our lady was referring here to is, is um, impurity of the flesh, right? But I, lest, lest you are someone who kind of excuses yourself and, and checks off the box and says, well, I'm good because I don't struggle with that. I've, I've maintained uh, my chastity and my purity of body and mind there are other ways in which we can fail to be pure we we can even think of just like purity of intention for example uh purity of heart in regards to love and not just you know kind of like physical love but just love in general. Um, purity of speech all of these impurities of... Of gossip, of uh, of slander, of judgmentalism, of just muck—they cover our eyes like cataracts, and they prevent us from seeing God. And these these are actually the things that God purges us from in in uh, purgatory. I was about to say in heaven, but in purgatory, He purges us. He heals us. Purgatory is a place of healing. He purges and heals us from these things that, that prevent us from seeing, you know, to use our modern language from scene 2020. How can we participate in the beatific vision when we're blind, when we're blinded by impurity? And so, first of all, Happiness consists in this vision of God and we dispose ourselves to the vision of God through purity but second of all happiness in heaven consists in the delight in enjoying God the delight in enjoying God and he says uh, Aquinas says that we dispose ourselves to this delight to this enjoyment by love and you can you can totally see This is true. Let me just read this quote for you, and then we'll unpack it with our with our own experience. This is a direct quote from Thomas Aquinas. One who has a more yearning love of God, one who has a more burning love of God. I read it yearning, but it's actually burning. But same idea. One who has a more burning love of God will find more delight in the enjoyment of God. One who has a more burning love of God will find more enjoyment in God. I am from California and I love In-N-Out Burger. Maybe some of you listening know what I'm talking about. Most people that I meet who've had In-N-Out like In-N-Out, but every so often I meet someone who doesn't like In-N-Out and I lose all respect and trust for them. <laughs> um, but I am going to enjoy an in and out burger more than somebody who does not like in and out. Now that this might sound like dumb, like you're like, like I'm, I'm breaking it up to a point of like obviousness. Um, but but let's 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 look at it from another perspective. Um, who who is who is most excited to see the bride on her wedding day? A lot of people are excited, right? But but let's really be honest. Who is the most excited to see the bride on her wedding day? Uh, the, the bridegroom, for sure. Why? Because he has this burning love for his beloved and because of that he delights in her more than anyone else we need to we need to stir up and inflame our love for god because the more we love god the more we will enjoy him in heaven. And this this is such an important key for understanding heaven. I meet people all the time. I meet people all the time who say things to me like, I don't believe that just because I don't go to church, when I die, God isn't going to allow me into heaven. I'm like, you are completely misunderstanding this idea of heaven here. Completely, because Why do you think that if you have no desire to spend any time with God here on earth, you're going to have any desire to spend eternity with him in heaven? This is the idea that Aquinas is getting at here. If you don't burn for love for God on earth, why in the world do you think that all of a sudden, when you're faced to face with him on judgment day, your particular judgment, when you die, when you are face to face with him, that all of a sudden you're going to be able to flip a switch and you're going to be able to enjoy the delights of heaven, which, which is, which are seeing him and enjoying him. If you have had no desire for him on earth, why in the world are you going to desire him in heaven? And this is precisely why people choose hell. They don't want him on earth. And guess what? When you wake up dead, your desires have not changed. Your desires have not changed. We, the, the the spiritual life consists in stirring up our love for God here on earth so that we can fully enjoy him in heaven. And this is this is uh this is married couples who become disillusioned with one another and their relationships. Do they enjoy coming home to one another? No. They may be married. Uh, they may have sworn this oath, this covenant to one another. They may even in a way be minimally faithful to that, but they don't have this this burning love. And so they have no enjoyment. They may not even want to actually spend time together. They may even come to disdain one another's presence. This is why it's simply not enough to, to just profess a belief in God and think that um, heaven is is guaranteed for you. Because a a man and a woman who are in a a difficult marriage that's gone cold, they profess that they're married to one another. But they probably, they may not have any desire to be together. And, And we need to think about our relationship with God in these terms. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't, Uh, when we don't consider the fact that God is a trinity of persons. And so though he is God and, and, and worlds away different from human persons, we're still talking about personal relationships here. And if there are people that we don't want to spend time with here on earth, there's certainly the possibility that we won't want to spend time with God in heaven. And so our life here on earth, um, it should be stirring up this this burning love for him so that when we we meet him uh, face to face in heaven, we can see him, we can actually see him first of all, because of our purity, but we can have this delight in enjoying him. And as we stir up that desire uh, in our hearts here on earth, we begin to experience heaven on earth. See see God and God alone is the source of our happiness. God and God alone is the source of our happiness and so we need to we need to embrace this. We need to embrace him. Let's continue. Uh, so Jesus has said these beautiful things about going to prepare a place, Uh, for us in his father's house. And then Thomas has a question. You know, we imagine him kind of raising his hand, perhaps. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay, so we get this beautiful and famous uh, verse, John fourteen six, from Jesus: "I am the way and the truth and the life." And Aquinas, in the in the beautiful systematic way in which he he writes, breaks this down for us. He said, "Jesus really answers Thomas's question here. Thomas's question is twofold: Where are you going, and how can we get there? Where are we going, and how can we get how can we get there?" How can we follow you, Lord? And Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for Aquinas, um, with this threefold answer, he answers uh, uh, the Apostle Thomas's twofold question, which is, where are you going? How can we get there? Jesus says, I am the way. How can we get there? By following him. I am the way. Where are you going? Aquinas says that Jesus answers this when he says, I am the truth and the life. These are two beautiful things that we seek after so very often, truth and life. And so uh, Jesus answers this question of Thomas, where are you going and how can we get there? I am the way and the truth and the life. Okay. I am the way and the truth and the life. But, um, and I love that how John gives us this interaction um, because it gives us kind of a a window into perhaps what Jesus' interactions with the apostles might've been like because uh, Thomas asks a question, Jesus answers it. Now, Philip has a question. Uh, Philip said to him, this is at verse four, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Uh, And then Jesus has kind of strong words for him, but I think they're affectionate. Have I been with you all this time, Philip? Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. There's so much in here. Um, Let's unpack it. First of all, um, uh, scholars have pointed out that uh, Philip's question kind of sounds a lot like a question that Moses uh, puts to God, or a request, I should say, that Moses puts to God at uh, Exodus Thirty three fifteen. 15 uh moses says uh uh or uh, excuse me exodus 33 18 moses says there he's he, moses has been in conversation with the lord and uh and then all of a sudden he says please lord let me see your glory let me see your glory And it says at Exodus 33, 19, the Lord answered, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name before you. I who show favor to whom I will, I who grant mercy to whom I will, but you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. And then it continues. uh, It says, uh, here continued the Lord is a place near me where, where you shall station yourself on the rock, when my glory passes, I will set you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand so that you may see my back, but my face may not be seen. Okay, it's, it's, It sounds a little um, comical, but, but Moses, probably with this great yearning and burning love for God, just kind of bursts out, Lord, let me see your glory. And the Lord says, I will I will let my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim uh, my name in front of you. I will grant you mercy and show favor upon you. But you, you can't see me and live. You can't see my glory and live, but I will let you see a piece of my glory. I will pass before you. And as my back... Uh, you know, as I pass and, and my back becomes visible, I will, you know, take my hand away and you can see my back, but you can't see my face. Now, it's fascinating because whether Philip was thinking of this or not, when we compare this, this interaction between Moses and God and then Philip and the rest of the 12 with Jesus, we really begin to see the beauty of, of Jesus's person here especially Jesus's human nature. Why? Because how how does the way Jesus answers Philip contrast with the way that God answers Moses? Jesus doesn't say, I can't show you who I am. In fact, Jesus says, you have seen you have seen. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus, in his human nature, veils his glory. But nonetheless, to see Jesus is to see God. And to see Jesus is to see the Father. And in in a uh, Thomas Aquinas in his commentary on John as he continues uh diving into these verses as he continues moving into this passage this is where he can, begins to unpack kind of the trinitarian theology for us um and there's this idea for for Aquinas um that John uh he the key to understanding these passages is, is actually the, the, the favored kind of title for Jesus in John's gospel. And the favored title for Jesus in, in John's gospel, we can find it at the very beginning of his gospel in uh, one of the more famous verses. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god. and aquinas makes the case that john prefers this title word for jesus because this title uh conjures this idea of self-disclosure. now what do i mean by this? i want to read you some direct quotes here from aquinas in his his commentary on the gospel of john to try to uh, elucidate this notion of of John wanting to refer to Jesus the, as the word because this idea, this title of Jesus as the word, the, the logos, implies self-disclosure. This is a, this is a direct quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, his commentary on the Gospel of John. He says, people disclose their secrets by their word. This is why it is only by a person's words that we can know another person's secret. No one can gain knowledge of the father except by his word, which is his son. Okay. And then Aquinas goes on to quote, for example, Matthew 11, verse 27. No one knows the father except the son. He continues, just as when a man wants to reveal himself through the word of his heart, uttering it in audible sounds, he clothes his inner word with the garments of writing or of speech. In the same way, God wanting to disclose himself to men reveals himself in flesh and in time by his word, which he conceives from eternity. And in this way, no one can arrive at a knowledge of the father except through the son. The word, uh, uh, continuing quoting Aquinas, the word articulates the whole being of the father. And here he means the word, like the word, Um, uppercase, so so Jesus in his uh, divine personhood, the word Jesus in his divine personhood articulates the whole being of the Father. It devolves to the word, uppercase, person. It devolves to the word to disclose the Father, to disclose the Trinity, and to disclose everything whose source is God, okay? So there's this idea here that that, uh, Jesus as the Word, because he is the Word of the Father, the Word of the Trinity, he is the one who reveals the Father and who reveals the Trinity. Because as Aquinas says, no one can know the inner life, the inner thoughts of a person, unless that person um, gives life to his inter, inner thoughts, his inner life uh, by words, by uh, actually, you know, uttering sounds with his mouth or writing down things on paper, this is how we reveal ourselves to one another through our words. And the same is true in the life of the Trinity. The way that the Father reveals himself is through his word, which is a person, the second person of the Trinity. And, And this is why we can say that all of divine revelation and when we say all of divine revelation, we, we literally mean like all the doctrines, all the dogmas, all the theology, all of divine revelation is contained in the person of Jesus Christ. It's contained in the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the word of God. And so the way that God discloses himself to humanity is to to utter forth his word. But but not only that, as Aquinas gets at, for God, that is not enough. He actually, his word takes on this humanity, this human flesh. And so we can now, uh, in a way, read the word. Why? Because the word stands before us in the form of Jesus and we can see him and this is this is precisely why Jesus can say whoever has seen me has seen the father whoever has seen me has seen the father I want to take a moment here um, to to dive into this last verse of our gospel. Jesus is very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. When Aquinas uh, gets to this verse, he talks about the fact that um, this is true kind of on the surface level. So let's think about the works of Jesus. You know, um, he healed people um, he, uh, he raised people from the dead. He cast out demons, right? Um, are the apostles going to do these things? In fact, they are. And in some ways, as Aquinas points out, um, they're going to do even greater works than these. Uh, Thomas Aquinas gives the example of, you know, Jesus was able to heal the hemorrhaging, the hemorrhaging woman with just the, uh, the edge of his garment. Peter, on the other hand, is 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 gonna heal someone with merely his shadow, right? We read in Acts that um people when Peter was passing by, they would bring the sick out onto the streets in their on their pallets and their beds, with the hope that 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 just maybe just Peter's shadow would fall upon them because Peter's shadow could heal them. Whoa! So for Aquinas. In a sort of surface level way, it's true that what the apostles will do are even greater works than what Jesus does. But Aquinas also turns to St. Augustine to actually reorient us here to to point out what Jesus is probably really truly referring to here. So what what is really the greater works that Jesus is referring to here? Uh, Well, like I said, Aquinas is going to turn to Augustine and the catechism is actually going to quote this at paragraph 1994. The catechism says, justification, justification is the most excellent work of God's love made manifest in Christ Jesus and granted by the Holy Spirit. It is the opinion of St. Augustine that, quote, The justification of the wicked is a greater work than the creation of heaven and earth. That is awesome. The justification of the wicked is a greater work than the creation of heaven and earth. Go outside at night and look up at the stars. They're so beautiful. Look out your window in the morning and watch the sunrise. It's so beautiful. Think about how all those things came into existence, came into being. It's magnificent. And then watch a baby be baptized which is God's greater work, the creation of the cosmos or the recreation of mankind? And the answer as to which is the greater work, it's the baptism of the child who becomes a new creation the justification of the wicked is a greater work than the creation of heaven and earth because Augustine continues, heaven and earth will pass away, but the salvation and the justification of sinners surpasses the creation of, of the angels even. It surpasses uh, it surpasses uh, uh, the creation of, of, of the cosmos. What God does in sanctifying humanity is even greater than creating the world. And so relate this, because this quote from Augustine that the Catechism uh, pulls in at paragraph 1994. Aquinas pulls in, in his commentary here on John 14, 12, and he says, the greater works that the apostles are going to do, what are they? Well, if the greatest work of God is not the creation of the cosmos, but the justification of man, then the greater works than the apostles are going to do is the work of the sacraments, because it's it's the sacraments that justify man. And so if If the greater work is not the creation of the cosmos, but rather the baptism of an infant and the priest does that acting in the person of Christ, then indeed the apostles and their successors are going to do greater works than even our Lord did through our Lord. But nonetheless, Jesus himself says, I very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these. Ah, oh, there's, there's so, so much good stuff in this gospel. Lastly, I want to leave you uh, uh, with kind of uh, a first century cultural, contextual interpretation of what Jesus is doing here that's just beautiful and it contains all of these gorgeous, gorgeous nuptial overtones. You've maybe heard me talk about it before, but it's directly related to our gospel. Okay, so let's rewind way back to the very beginning. Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also and we will, he doesn't say this, but we will dwell together for all of eternity, right? That's the implication because Jesus is going to take us to heaven to be with him in perfect unity in the trinity and the beatific vision. What is the first century uh, Palestinian Jewish contextual, uh, I was going to say contextual context, but that's redundant. Uh, What is the context of this? Well, And I said it it reveals all these these beautiful nuptial overtones. In first century uh, Palestinian Jewish weddings, uh, weddings or marriages, you might say, um, were two phase. And so the first phase of a marriage was the betrothal phase, Okay. Um, For example, we hear about this at the beginning of the infancy narratives in Luke, right? We're told that uh, Mary and Joseph were betrothed. And in the betrothal phase, you actually had the uh, consent. You had the exchange of vows, but the bride did not yet live with the bridegroom. So what would happen is you would exchange vows and then the the woman, the bride would go back to her parents' home and continue living with them while the bridegroom went back to his father's house and he built on another room onto his father's house. It was common um, for, for homes in first century Palestine to be kind of what you might call multifamily units, okay? Um, So they had courtyards and off of these courtyards were different rooms. And it was not uncommon for um, multiple generations of a family to live on this little compound of a home. Once the bridegroom had gone and built a room onto his father's house and it was completed, then he would go back to the bride usually in a surprise and he would fetch her and take her back to his father's house to his new home and there they would consummate the marriage okay and then they were the the, the marriage was kind of complete, okay? With this in mind. When Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. This beautiful image of Jesus, the bridegroom, who has betrothed himself to us, in his earthly work and by means of the sacraments, but who has not yet taken us to himself. See, we possess God in a way here on earth uh, through the sacraments, especially through the Eucharist, but we don't possess him fully in the way that we will in heaven. And so there's this beautiful um, kind of resonance with the idea of the bridegroom who, who has betrothed himself to his bride, but has not yet taken his bride to himself. And the unity of the bride and the bridegroom has not has not been manifested yet. But just as the bridegroom comes back from the bride and there is great feasting and celebration, so Jesus Jesus promises, I will leave you, but I'm leaving to prepare a place for you, you who are my beloved, my betrothed. And if I have told you that I prepare a place for you, I will also come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be. Also, thanks for listening.